The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. For those who don't know me, my name is Nick Kidwell. I am senior pastor here at Valley Creek Church. So glad to have you all with us this morning. Uh, This morning we are proceeding on. We've been in a series in the book of Matthew, and we are proceeding on with Matthew chapter 11. We just had a little mini-series in chapter 10 about the mission that the Lord has called us to, and a big part of that mission and the commissioning was the Lord preparing His disciples for the persecutions and the oppositions that they would face on the way. Well, here now in chapter 11, we will see some persecution firsthand. However, it's not the disciples who are being persecuted, but rather John the Baptist. In our passage today, we'll be reminded that the kingdom, which is coming with great force, will also suffer attacks by those who violently oppose it, and we see that. We'll read of John in prison under Herod, because John had been speaking truth to Herod about his adulterous situation that he was in. Matthew explains that for us later in chapter 14. However, What we're going to spend the majority of our time on this morning is not necessarily John or John's situation, though we will dive into those things, but we'll be considering the question, what do we do now with the knowledge that we have of Jesus Christ? This is the question that all hearers of the gospel have to ask themselves. What do I do with this? What do I believe about this. So turn with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 to 24. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we just ask that you be with us this morning. We pray that you bless the reading and teaching of your word. God, thank you for giving us your word to guide us and instruct us and to reveal to us all truth that is necessary for life and salvation. Lord, we just ask that we would receive that this morning. Be with me. Help my words effectively communicate the truth you desire for us to have this morning, and we pray that our hearts would be open, even as we consider today the ways that we can be blind to truth. I just ask that you would help us to have those obstacles and barriers removed, that we would be changed, that we would be moved, and that we could receive your word. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you'll be brought down to Hades. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here, but there is an underlying thread we're going to see. But the beginning of this passage, it's a surprising one. If someone were going to make up the gospel they surely would not have John the Baptist, the one who declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the one who baptized Jesus. Surely they would not have this man questioning the Lord. Yet, this is what we see here. It's an embarrassing account of John. Some try to say that John isn't actually questioning, that he's asking on behalf of his disciples, or or that he's simply giving Jesus an opportunity to, to make a statement. But our passage does not support that. Though this passage in no way vilifies John, in fact, Jesus' response to John gives hope to all of us who may be puzzled at times or, or wrestle with doubt. Nevertheless, John is finding himself doubting. Is Jesus truly the one that John thought he was? And how Jesus responds and what he lays out And the rest of our passage this morning affirms for us who Jesus is and our responsibility to respond appropriately. John asks Jesus by way of messengers in verse 3, Are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? This calls to mind language John had previously used in chapter 3 verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John there was speaking with prophetic insight and believed that he was making the way for the coming Messiah. And now he wonders, as he sits in prison, persecuted, 
is Jesus really the one who was to come after him, or will there be another? And so Jesus responds to John in this way. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is loosely quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. We heard a lot of these earlier this morning. And he's drawing upon the expectations that surrounded the coming of the promised Messiah. He's effectively saying what Isaiah prophesied is coming to pass. Isaiah 35, we read it earlier. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the man lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. These things Jesus had done and more. We looked in chapters 8 and 9 at many miracles. Jesus proved himself to be not only the Messiah, but one with God himself. As he healed diseases and cleansed lepers, commanded demons, controlled the weather, raised the dead, and even forgave sins. But it's not just Miracles that Jesus mentions here in response to John, but it's also the authoritative good news that he was bringing. It says the poor have good news preached to them. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 61, which was an unambiguous messianic prophecy. It reads, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That was speaking of the Messiah who was to come. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, as Jesus proved himself to be authoritative in his teaching and his message. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught the people what it looked like to be a part of it. And his authority was so great that everyone marveled at the power of his speaking. Jesus says, look, John, I am he. But Jesus' claim to be the Messiah doesn't stop in verse 5. In the next section where Jesus talks about John, a large part of what he's doing here is explaining that he, so this is the whole section where he's talking about John and and, uh, there's been none greater than him born of women. Large part of what he's doing here is explaining that he, Jesus, is bringing with him a new age. The long-awaited messianic age, the age of the Spirit of God, an age that is so glorious that those who experience it, who, who proclaim it, find themselves worthy of more honor than John the Baptist himself. Jesus says, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, Jesus is not dissing John here. This isn't some condemnation of John for his question earlier, nor is Jesus saying that John's not a part of the kingdom of heaven. But what he's doing, he's saying John is a great prophet. John is, in fact, the greatest prophet to date. That's a huge statement to make. He sets John the Baptist in a higher position than Moses. Jesus says he was the prophet that had been prophesied about, the one of whom it was said would come to prepare the way for the Lord. That's what's alluded to in verse 10, which quotes Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. That's mentioned in verse 14. This was prophesied according to Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus says, John is the messenger and I am the Lord. This is what the prophecies meant. John came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the hearts of the people for the day of the coming of the Lord. John was the last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet who looked forward to and spoke of the coming Messiah, but he had greater insight than any prophet who was before him because he saw the promise that was coming. He straddled the line. He was a prophet who was stepping from one age to the next, the age of promise to now the age of fulfillment, the age of the Spirit. And Jesus says that was an honor. And he is, by God's grace, A worthy man, yet because I have come, Jesus says, because I have come, something greater is here even than that. John's not put down. John's significance is spoken of to highlight the greater significance of the Messiah and the kingdom that he has brought. Now those who are in the kingdom and proclaim the news of the kingdom are even greater than John, for they speak with even greater knowledge and intimacy with the Messiah, the Messiah who we are coming to see throughout Matthew is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, but he is one with God himself. Take comfort, Jesus says to John. The great and awesome day of the Lord has arrived. I am He and I have come. Matthew even confirms this for us in a subtle way when he uncharacteristically says in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, Jesus was not called the Christ yet in the days of John, But Matthew reminds us right at the beginning of the passage, this is he. Jesus is the Christ. He uses that word there to affirm for us. And so, because Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, Lord of all creation, he reminds us and John, verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And he goes on in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus has given signs and evidence, he's fulfilled prophecies, he's taught, he's worked miracles, and now we are confronted with the question, how will we respond? That's going to be a theme that plays out over the next few chapters And what we're reminded of in this passage is not only that there will be varied responses to the message, but that there are obstacles for us in our ability to properly perceive Christ. Stumbling blocks that we encounter because of our sin, because of weaknesses and blind moral compasses. And so what we'll take the rest of our time this morning looking at is what stops us from seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Because as we see in verse 24, there is 
there is a day of judgment coming when the truth will win out and Christ and all those who are in his charge will be vindicated and if we have refused to see and believe, then we will be lost. And I would wish that on no one. We need to humble ourselves that we might hear and see and receive the truth of Christ. We have to humble ourselves that we would hear and see and receive the truth of Christ. So we're going to look at three reasons we might stumble over Christ. Our faulty assumptions, our desire for comfort, and our stubborn pride. And I really struggled with this first word even this morning. Jeff and I were talking. I was like, I don't know what phrase to use for this first one. So faulty assumptions it is. That's the word we're going with. But it's one that's common to us all and not one that the Lord is bringing harsh, strict rebuke to, but one we need to be aware of. Despite our culture's fickle relationship with it, the reality is truth exists and capital T truth can be known. When we approach a tree, it's not up for debate whether we're looking at a tree or a horse. It is, in fact, a tree. And the one thing I can say absolutely without question is that it's not both. It is not both a tree and a horse. When we approach Jesus, it's not up for debate whether or not he is or is not the Christ, the eternal Son of God. He is. Now, you may disagree with my conclusion, which is your decision to make, but one thing that cannot be claimed is that Christ is the Lord for some people and not for others. He either is Lord of all creation or he's not. He can't be both. And that's a massive issue that we cannot leave unresolved. If he is the Son of God and truly did all that is recorded of him, if he truly did rise again from the dead, then that means that God exists. That means that God made this world. That means that God has good intentions for us. That means that we're accountable to someone. It means Jesus died for our sins. It means we have sins. It means we do wrong. It means we need forgiveness. That means we need a Savior. Because without the Savior, we will, as our passage reminds us today, perish in eternal judgment. But with the Savior, we'll forever be in the joyful presence of God. Is this true or is it not? Because it means a lot for me if it is. And what Scripture, history, philosophy, logic, experience, and even reason confirm is that it is true. Yet Romans 1 says that all of us, in our sinful rebellion against God, suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and exchange the truth about God for a lie. We all do this. We've all done this. And in this rejection, in our foolishness, we have become dim, unable to see the truth clearly. That's why I like to pray before we read the scriptures. We cannot see the truth. We cannot understand God without his help because of our weaknesses. And so we have to confront the obstacles that we face in seeing and believing and receiving the truth. And this applies for all of us. Even if in God's mercy you have had your eyes opened to Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, 
you know that we all too, in our varied ways, can doubt God, can question Him, can waver in trusting Him. And this is what we see here with John. This imprisoned and I'm sure wearied man was questioning Christ. And what I believe fueled this for John was an incorrect assumption that he had about Christ that needed to be addressed. You've likely heard the joke before about the man trapped in a flood. It goes something like this. A man is trapped on his roof in a flood and the waters are rising and so a boat comes past and the people say, get in. And he says, no, no, I'm waiting. God will deliver me. That boat goes on. Another boat comes by a little while later. They say, get in. He says, no, no, I'm waiting. God will deliver me. And so they go on too. Well, the waters keep rising. Finally, a helicopter circles overhead. They drop a rope. They say, get on. He says, no, God will deliver me. And the helicopter leaves. And finally, the waters rise. The man's washed away and he dies. So in heaven, he looks to the Lord and he says, what happened? Why didn't you deliver me? And Jesus says, I sent two boats and a helicopter. Now, this is a silly joke. It's not meant to be deep theology here, but it does illustrate for us the danger that exists when we have opinions about God that are not rooted in the truth that he has revealed to us. We'll assume this story takes place in our world with the God of the scriptures, and this man knew, he knew God saves, and he believed that, but he had a very narrow view of God's providence and how God often moves and provides. He was waiting for, I don't know what, the heavens to open, a hand to come down, an angel to swoop in, whatever it was, he was unable to see God's actual provision in light of his own faulty assumptions of what God was going to do. This is the type of obstacle that we encounter with John. John was a man of God. And he proclaimed earlier in Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John painted a picture of, of the looming day of judgment when he said of Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This was a message of repentance and judgment. And so John surely was confused when Christ came in such humbleness. Jesus wasn't bringing the sword of judgment. Jesus was dining with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was meek and humble. Yes, Jesus spoke with conviction and hard truth, but this isn't what John had pictured in his mind that the great and awesome day of the Lord was going to look like. It wasn't fitting John's paradigm of what he had built in his mind. And so what Jesus does is gently reminds John that he is in fact the Messiah, but that John hadn't properly understood what is supposed to be taking place at present. John wasn't wrong when he declared that judgment was coming, the prophets spoke of this. They spoke of the Messiah ushering in the age of the kingdom and with it executing judgment on the enemies of God and those who stood opposed. Now John could have said, Jesus cannot be the Christ because he's not bringing judgment. Despite all that he's done and all that he's proven, I refuse to believe that he's the Messiah because he doesn't come wielding a sword. No way. 
But John didn't do that. He was willing to submit his confusion to Christ. And so Jesus helped him and brought clarity. Essentially, Jesus helped him see that sometimes when you look at a mountain range and you see two peaks that seem to be sitting side by side, they are in fact separated by a distance. One further back and one closer to you. So too are many of the prophecies that have been handed down, especially about the day of the Lord. If this is the overall picture of the day of the Lord, part of its fulfillment is nearer to you. The offering of salvation and the extension of peace, and part of it is further back. The great day of judgment that is coming. Jesus even speaks about this in verses 20 to 24, but it's not coming just yet. Both are parts of the kingdom and the good news and the final days, but they are separated by a time. Jesus very subtly affirms all of this by how he chooses to quote the prophet Isaiah. He only quotes the passages of healing and proclamation of the good news. He stops before hitting the passages on that final judgment. Today is the proclamation of the good news and the offer of salvation. Jesus, who, remember, is God himself, is correcting John's assumptions. And John, I do believe, asks this question in humility. Though it may have been confusing for him, John was willing to have his perception challenged and his understanding reshaped by the Lord. We need to always be willing to do the same ourselves. Can our assumptions, can your assumptions be challenged? Do you not believe in Christ because you assume miracles cannot happen? Why do you believe they can't happen? Can that assumption be challenged? When you say miracles don't happen, are you willing to loosen that grip when you read testimonies of supernatural things or encounter them in your own life? I remember hearing one man say, I wouldn't believe in miracles even if God pulled back the clouds and told me so himself. That is not a willingness to know the truth. That's a commitment to our own faulty assumptions. Do you let God and truth shape your understanding? When all pointers reveal Jesus was the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins, an idea supported not only by the beauty and soul-satisfying truth of such a gesture, but by eyewitness accounts and testimonies and histories, are you willing to have that assumption challenged? If you know Christ, we fall prey to the same things. Do we find ourselves stuck and begrudging God because he hasn't answered a prayer the way we think he should? Well, what does his word say on the matter? Are we putting our understanding, our expectations, our assumptions before his own? Do you hold some theological position simply because it's what you've always assumed? Even though you come to see God's word seems to be teaching something different. When I was younger, I couldn't believe that God was absolutely sovereign over all things. I had a hard time with that. I didn't like the idea of predestination, yet when I was confronted by God's word, I couldn't ignore what it said. We're actually going to talk about this topic some next week. Jeff's going to bring that for us. But God makes clear through his word, he is sovereign, and there's a lot of mystery in that, but we submit to truth. And as I've submitted to that truth, 
I've come to see the beauty and the goodness of it. We're going to have a lot of wrong ideas about a lot of things because we're sinful, because we aren't God. We live in a broken world. Our backgrounds, our upbringings, the culture that we're in, our personal dispositions, all of them shape and mold us and a lot of times aren't molding us in line with the truth of Christ. And as people who have accepted Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, we cannot let our faulty assumptions cause us to doubt God or question Him. We take our questions, we take our confusions, and we let Him shape our paradigms. God's not upset when we bring those to him. It's okay to say, I'm confused. I don't understand. But let him shape it. Let him change it. But it's challenging. It's challenging to do that, to be conformed to truth rather than to try to conform truth to us. It makes us uncomfortable. And so that leads us to our second obstacle, our desire for comfort. So our faulty assumptions get in the way, our desire for comfort gets in the way. In referencing John, Jesus says in verses 7 and 9, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing, or did you go out to see a prophet? Jesus uses these illustrations to remind people of the need to seek out the truth. The reed shaken by the wind represents a fickle teacher, a prophet who moves and bends with every shifting tide in the air, adjusting their message with the changing cultural tides. Unfortunately, we've seen many churches go this route. It's not new, but it happens, shifting and bending the message to make the truth easier to accept, to make it more palatable. The problem is when you do this, you lose truth. This has been done with the reality and existence of hell, with the need for repentance, with God's good design for gender and sexuality, with the sanctity of life. The list could go on. The reed shaken in the wind is the one who twists the scriptures, as Peter says in 2 Peter, when there are things in them that are hard to understand and accept. And those who go looking for a shaken reed are those who are not actually looking for truth. They are those whom Paul says in 2 Timothy have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This thread continues when he says, are you looking for a prophet in soft clothing? In the king's household, we see in the Old Testament many times when prophets were in the charge of kings, they proved not to be true prophets after all, but rather they were yes-men who would simply say whatever the king or whatever the people wanted to hear. That is a travesty. It's confirmation bias to the max. Many people, for fear of having to confront their own false beliefs, or having to admit their sin and weaknesses, or simply not wanting to have to deal with the challenges that can come with it, will often seek out shaken reeds and flattering prophets. I can think of many times in my life where I heard a bit of news, and I think, oh, I just wish I hadn't heard that, because now I have to deal with it. We should not be people who are afraid to confront the truth. We should seek out real Prophets. Now, I'm, I'm using this as a metaphor. 
I'm not saying seek out prophets in a revelatory sense here. Christ is the greatest prophet. The scriptures give us all the truth that we need for wisdom and salvation. But what I mean is we need to seek out truth. People who proclaim the truth. We should be looking for those voices that aren't just peddling the philosophy of the day, even if it's nonsense. We shouldn't be looking for those voices that will just tell us what we want to hear, but we need to look for those voices that will tell us what we need to hear, the truth. You shouldn't get mad at your doctor for telling you that you have a disease. You should thank him for opening your eyes to the truth. We shouldn't get mad at Christ for exposing the darknesses of this world and calling us to righteousness. We should thank him for making this known while the offer of salvation still stands. I've spoken with people before who struggle to accept Christ because they realize what it would mean for their life. Things would have to change. And I've seen those people continue to refuse to accept him for that reason. And I respect them for recognizing it means something to come to the Lord. But that's us loving our sin and loving the darkness. That's us desiring immediate comfort over the truth. Ignorance is not bliss in this case. And the reality is that by bending the truth to fit our wants and desires, we are doing ourselves and others harm. Believer, if you twist God's word because you don't want to have to look odd in a culture that opposes it, then you do the culture no good because you're no longer speaking the truth and you're doing yourself harm. And you're in a dangerous place where you're numbing yourself to the guidance and conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I remember the day I first felt called to pastoral ministry. I went to a church down in Florida, this was many years ago, and I was sitting listening to a minister. And I don't remember the passage he was preaching from, and most of what he was saying was fine, but there was a hard truth in this passage that needed to be said. And all he did was dance around it. And he refused to acknowledge it and talk about it. He was being a shaky reed in that moment. He was a soft-clothed prophet seeking to appease a room full of self-appointed kings. I sat there and I had the immediate sense come over me that I wanted to be part of making sure that other people never missed out on the truth of God's word. I wanted to proclaim it in its entirety, challenges and all. But I admit that's not easy. Even as I compiled this message, I fought temptations to, to hold back at points or to change how I was going to say something because I was worried of who I, I might offend or, or how it would be taken. We want to be winsome. We want to be appropriate. We want to be timely and kind and loving, but we never want to compromise the Word of God or hold back truth out of fear or to try and gain popularity. Let's not be people who seek out just what we want to hear, but let's be people who earnestly and passionately want to know the truth. And I believe firmly and I pray that you would come to the same conclusion that knowing the truth means knowing God, knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, and submitting to His Word. Let's not be comfort seekers, but truth seekers. And the final obstacle we see in our passage is our stubborn pride. Our faulty assumptions, our desire for comfort, and our stubborn pride. This little bit in verses 16 to 19 about the children in the marketplace calling to each other, it can be a confusing one when you hit it. 
and there are different approaches that, that theologians take in interpreting it, though they all come to the same conclusion. But personally, I believe the interpretation that fits best with the context is that this is being used as a picture where Jesus and John are the children that are doing the calling, and the generation are the children who are not responding to the call. So Jesus, he called out to this generation playing the wedding flute. He's giving a hopeful message of the kingdom, encouraging people to rejoice at the good news. And John is singing a funeral dirge. He's calling for repentance. And yet this generation refuses to respond to either of them. Jesus uses the illustration to call out the hard-hearted, stubborn response of many, comparing them to pouty, self-indulgent, stubborn, and unappeasable children. If you're a parent, you know this battle well. You're desperately trying to get your child to eat. You offer them mac and cheese, no. You offer them chicken nuggets, no. You offer them pizza, no. All the while, they sit there and they say that they're hungry. You say, if you eat a good supper, you can have some ice cream afterwards. No, I don't, like, I don't like ice cream. I don't want any ice cream. There's a stubborn, rebellious pride to all of that. A determination of the will not to be appeased and a stubborn refusal of anything that is being offered. This is what Jesus is calling out. When John comes eating and drinking, not eating and drinking, meaning he came in a somber tone of repentance. John separated himself from the world and its pleasures in some ways. He went out into the wilderness. He's living more of an aesthetic life. Some charged him with having a demon. This, from their perspective, is not the way that a godly man should behave. But then on the other hand, when Jesus comes and he is eating and drinking and he does not isolate himself but rather dined with tax collectors and sinners, they charged him with being a glutton and a drunkard and keeping bad company. There's nothing that Jesus could do to appease such a person. This person is not looking for truth. This person is the one that Paul says in 2 Timothy is always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. We don't want that to be true of us. But think how often we can do this in our own ways as believers. We, we want friends, but then we bemoan the challenges of navigating those friendships. We, we want a spouse, but then we grumble at the bumps in marital commitment. We want God to be forgiving, but then we get angry when he doesn't punish someone else. We want God to speak to us, but then we refuse to put forth the effort to hear from his word. We accuse Jesus of failing to provide for us in some way, but refuse to acknowledge all the many ways that he has given to us from his hand. Like children sitting and pouting on the street corner, we cling to our grumbling judgments rather than accepting and enjoying the truth of Christ that he has to offer. And it's a very dangerous place to be when we're in that place. Each of these have taken a little bit step further down the path of prideful rebellion from God. First, we have a conception about God, kind of formed in our own minds. It's off, and we need it corrected. Then we decide we want to cling and comfort to that misconception. And so we bend the truth, and we seek teachers to confirm 
what we think so that our ego might not be harmed. Then we begin to shut up our ears and become unappeasable and quite disagreeable to the truth, speaking out of both sides of our mouths, doing whatever we can to get away from it. And finally, like Capernaum in verse 23, we find ourselves desiring to be the ones exalted in the very place of God, refusing to acknowledge the truth and, ex- and, and refusing to accept Christ because we have firmly established ourselves as the king on our thrones. And all of us, all of us have been in that place. I know the truth, we say. I have no need for repentance. And that is the place of death. Jesus here does not mince his words. Though it seems that earlier on, some in the Galilean region were receptive to Christ, it seems that enthusiasm was fading and belief was not that pervasive. The cities he calls out, these are three large Jewish centers in Galilee, and he compares them to large known Gentile centers. And he calls them out for refusing to see and believe Christ, even though Christ had proven himself so thoroughly to them. He makes clear that they had been given signs and proofs so great that had those Gentile cities received the same signs, they would have repented long ago. He goes so far as to compare Capernaum to Sodom, that Wicked Old Testament land destroyed by the fire of judgment, held up as an example of rebellion against God. God says, you've seen and heard so much that you are worse yet even than Sodom, who would have repented if they had seen me. These people had the prophets. These people had the history. These were God's children through Abraham, and they refused to believe in Christ. And if Sodom then was destroyed, how much more, he says, will you face the judgment fire of hell for rejecting me? These types of moments, which Christ drops on us, and he's going to keep dropping on us throughout Matthew, they should instill in us a holy fear of God. We don't need to fear that we might get something wrong in our thinking at times. Again, that's going to happen. We don't need to fear if we have moments where we question or we waver. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his wavering. God tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. But but what this should do is remind us that we need to be ever humbling ourselves before God, bringing those weak moments to Him, confessing them, asking for help and for forgiveness, opening up our hands before Him, seeking truth, being willing to change our thinking when we're confronted by the Word of God, even if it's uncomfortable. And by all means, we seek to keep our hearts soft before the Lord, that we don't elevate ourselves up with hardened hearts who see no need for repentance proving that we never truly understood our need for salvation from Christ in the first place. When God confronts you with truth, even the truth you've heard this morning from His Word, what do you do with it? You're responsible to it. And that means if you've not yet turned to Christ and repented of your sins, Even you are responsible to what you have heard this morning. We all deserve the judgment of God, for we all have rebelled against Him. 
It's plain, the scriptures remind us, to all that God exists and that He is glorious, and yet we run from Him. So none of us, none of us deserve good from God's hand. Yet Christ, in His mercy, has extended grace to us by His hand through His death and resurrection, making known to us that He died on the cross for our sins so that we could be with God. Now this morning, we've all heard that message. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you've heard that message today. The cities in Galilee will be judged for rejecting Christ, despite seeing Him work among them. We are responsible if we reject Christ, after learning of Him as well. The more we know, the more we're accountable for. And if you pass from this life not having repented and turned to Christ, you will be judged. That's true of all of us if we are outside of Christ. Even the one who has never heard the offer of salvation, they still have rejected their God. But if you heard his offer of salvation and you still reject Christ, you'll be held accountable for that as well. But the glorious thing for all of us is that as long as there is breath in our lungs, the door of salvation remains open. Even Jesus, as he's denouncing these cities, he's doing so, yes, with judgment, but with pity. It's an effort to shake them awake, to see the truth, and to repent. Church, if you have Christ as your Savior, earnestly pursue him. Seek to be conformed to him, not to make him in your own image. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, consider him. Speak to me or anyone else you've seen up front here after the service or at the welcome table, and we'd be happy, happy to answer any questions or talk with you further. Wisdom is justified by her deeds, as Christ says in verse 19. One day, all will see Jesus Christ when he returns or when we die. If we reject him now, we will mourn then. But if we accept him now, In humility, by His Spirit, we will rejoice with Him then. We will rejoice with the one who sets captives free, who heals the blind and the sick, who preaches good news to the poor, who gives joy and life eternal. This is the offer before us. Let's be people who seek the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, We thank you that you have given us not what we always want to hear, but what we need to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us in our hearts this morning to receive your word that was written. Father, in any helpful thoughts that have come along the way, we pray that you would use those. Lord, we just pray most of all that we would see you, that we would cherish you, that we would delight in you, and we just ask that you would help take our blinders off, things that we have that that cause us to be Uh, to stumble over you, that cause us to question you, that cause us to um, waver in our faith. Lord, we just ask that you would fill us with faith. Help us to pursue righteousness and godliness that we might have less sin that, that binds and entangles us and pulls us down. Help us to be voices of grace and truth and light to a generation that needs it. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Christ, our Savior. 
Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.